Phnom Penh, I met with a local journalist who has been recently writing on the topic of eviction. This journalist not only writes about eviction, but also documents peaceful protests by evicted families. He took me to an eviction site on the edge of Phnom Penh. The story of this site was simple. A large corporation with Prime Minister Hun Sen and ruling party in pocket had needed a large portion of land in downtown Phnom Penh. A couple of years ago, the government stripped hundreds of families of the land the corporation promised to build condensed high-rise apartments for the families to move into elsewhere. However, after building one set of apartments, the corporation suddenly went bankrupt and halted mid construction. With no governmental support, many families were left to the streets. I met one woman and her family to ask questions about her experience and current living situation. This woman, although materially devastated, was lively and well-spoken. It seemed easy for her to give up. She had a home and a reliable job two years ago, paying $150 a month, but soon it was swept away by the eviction scandal. After speaking to me, she showed me around the area. The incomplete apartments, the wasteland of trash mounds with the occasional rooster methodically picking through the plastic piles, this was her new home. Another woman came and talked to me at the same site. She had a recent newborn baby but lacked breast milk because of malnutrition. This woman had a similar experience to the prior, stripped of house and left to the streets. Behind them was a man without a right leg, staring at us while lethargically dispersing flies. Previously, we looked at the Cambodian genocide, the American bombings, and Pol Pot's rise as the foundation for modern-day Cambodia. Forty years later, we look at how this foundation impacts life in the cities, villages, and farms spanned across the Southeast Asian country, and how the woman with the home and reliable job two years ago paying $150 a month but soon swept away by an eviction scandal, now lives next to the man without a right leg swatting flies. The red sky at night, lost at home. The wave of optimism that grips the world after the fall of the Soviet Union um, is, was, it created a false sense of how easy it would be to spread democratic norms around the world. There was a sense that democracy was sort of the natural state of peoples, and that if impediments to democratization were removed, which is to say dictatorial leaders, um, that democratic systems would flourish, as if by, uh, as, if, as if by magnetic, sort of, you know, it would happen naturally. Um, and I think that was mistaken. News and stories of the genocide spread around the globe decades after the conflict. But along with these tragic tales came relief, satisfaction, and complacency. As Sebastian Strangio alluded to, international organizations and countries around the world did not immediately seek to stabilize Cambodia. 
the Cold War was nearly over, and democracy was the only possible answer, right? In some ways, the hopes that the world had for Cambodia at the start of the 1990s were, I think, were grossly over-optimistic. Um, essentially, the hope was that a country that had never experienced any form of popular sovereignty or democratic government um, and just emerged from three or four decades of paralyzing war, revolutionary violence, and upheaval, was expected to simply adopt um, not only a democratic system, but uh, its leaders were expected to adopt democratic norms. Um, and I think from the very beginning, there was a wide gap between um, hope and reality. I think it's important to preface this with a little background on the political landscape and structure of the Cambodian government. Cambodia is a constitutional monarchy. What this means is that a prime minister is the head of the government with executive power and a monarch is the head of state. The Kingdom of Cambodia formally operates according to its 1993 constitution. Legislative power resides in two chambers, parliament called the National Assembly, and the Senate. A couple of important things here. Hun Sen, already mentioned, is the Prime Minister and has been since 1985. Just recently celebrated his 30th, actually. Hun Sen's party, and this is also important, is called the Cambodian People's Party, or the CPP. He said he will rule into his 70s. He's 63 right now. And in 1998, he retained his control of the prime minister position after a bloody coup, overthrowing elected prime minister, Prince Ranarit. The CPP holds over 70% of the seats in the Senate and 55% in the National Assembly. There are two primary opposition parties in Cambodia, and these are also important and will be referenced more in a bit. The first is the Cambodian National Rescue Party, the CNRP, led by Sam Rainsy. The second is the Phun Sinpek Party, led by Prince Ranarid, the aforementioned as a part of the Hun Sen coup. From 2004 to 2011, according to the World Bank Poverty Assessment Study, the poverty rate in Cambodia dropped more than 30 percentage points, from 50% down to 20. Life expectancy is going up in Cambodia, STD rates are going down, literacy rates are increasing, primary school participation rates seem to grow each year. By all of these measures, quality of life, or whatever you'd like to call it, in Cambodia is getting better. We can see the improvement. We all know this. Many statistics have a second underlying layer to them. I just told you poverty rate dropped 30 percentage points in seven years. That's incredible and also misleading. The loss of 30 cents per day of income, 30 cents, would throw approximately 3 million Cambodians back under the poverty line, bringing the rate back up to 40%. Throwing misleading statistics like this around can be very powerful. Mr. Strangio, again. The government has strategically adopted 
um, the narratives and tropes and language uh, of what um, what has been termed the humanitarian international, the democratic language um, that is that is so um, current at a global level. Um, and it's not just Hun Sen and the Cambodian government that have been able that have learned to do this. Um, the opposition, including particularly Sam Rainsy, have also learned to do this. They've learned to mirror um, the preoccupations of their international patrons. I tried for a long time to interview Sopia Chak for this podcast. Sopia is a role model for me. Maybe someday this podcast will make it to her ears. Anyways, Sopia is a leading human rights activist out of Cambodia. A lot of her work exposes many gross realities um, within the country. Listen to this for a second, and then I'll explain. In October 2015, two CNRP National Assembly members, remember the CNRP is one of the main opposition parties in Cambodia, Nia Chamroen and Kong Sapia were beaten and seriously injured outside the National Assembly Hall in Phnom Penh. That clip was the sound of one getting thrown out of his car, being sat down on the street, and subsequently taking kicks to the body. The three men you hear beating the National Assembly member are members of the military and bodyguard unit of Prime Minister Hun Sen. Earlier this year in 2016, Sopia wrote a letter to Secretary of State John Kerry, hoping that he would address human rights violations during his visit to Cambodia. Sopia's first example was one about two CNRP members. Her second example, though, has been scrutinized as a much larger, contentious, and higher profile case involving Sam Rainsy. Sam Rainsy is Cambodia's premier opposition leader to Hun Sen's Cambodia's People Party. He is the leader of the CNRP. Over the past decade, there have been dozens of warrants for his arrest driven by Hun Sen. As a result of these warrants, Rainsy has lived well over eight years in exile in France. But despite living abroad, Rainsy continues to remain an active political member and opposition leader and figure. Sopiop continues to write that during the past two and a half years, law enforcement, the military, the judiciary, and parliament have been used by the Cambodian government as instruments to repress and silence civil society. Human rights defenders, activists, and trade unionists have been constantly targeted by government authorities. Four land environmental rights defenders are currently detained on fabricated charges. And since the 2013 elections, government security forces have brutally repressed worker strikes and demonstrations by government critics, resulting in the killing of many protesters.
I met a man named T in Phnom Penh. He was one of my group's guides around the city. T was afraid to talk to me about Prime Minister Hun Sen. We were in private, behind the closed doors of a restaurant, but he said he was scared he'd be taken if he talked about him or his party. T admitted the government worried him, and corruption concerned him, but he would go no further than that. Prime Minister Hun Sen is everywhere. CPP posters along the roads, bulletins, and signs are ubiquitous. Further, in each classroom in Cambodia, there is a little picture of Hun Sen at the head of the room. So now we're going to get a brief Cambodian ecology lesson. Hopefully you've heard of the Mekong River, maybe in your 8th grade geography class or something. The river begins north of Cambodia in Tibet and runs for more than 2,600 miles through China, Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam before finally emptying into the South China Sea. It's Southeast Asia's longest river, but most significant is the impact the river has on the millions living along it. Citizens of Cambodia and Laos catch more freshwater fish per capita than anyone else on the planet. In many places along the river, fish is synonymous with food. The more than 400 known species of Mekong fish have sustained millions of people through droughts, floods, and even the genocidal Cambodian regime of Pol Pot. Connected to the Mekong in Cambodia is the Tonle Sap Lake, the heart of Cambodian civilization for centuries. Essentially what you need to know about the Tonle Sap is that it directly supports millions of Cambodians living on and along it. Even more so than the Mekong River, the Tonle Sap Lake has been the center of the Cambodian economy, culture, and travels in ancient Angkor civilization. It is nearly an understatement to say that the Tonle Sap Lake is essential to Cambodian life. Okay, so there was your short Cambodian geography and ecology lesson. And this is where it gets interesting, or uh, rather disconcerting. Here's the issue. In 2015, National Geographic reported on a 2013 analysis by the International Energy Agency, which predicted that Southeast Asia's demand for power will increase by 80% over the next 20 years. As countries like Cambodia are rapidly industrializing, the region clearly needs more energy, right? Makes sense. Also, considering the excitement around carbon-reducing energy, the hydropower potential of the Mekong River is more tempting than ever. Over 30 new dams are planned and expected to begin construction soon along the Mekong River. There are already 10 dams along the river, and 10 more are currently under construction. That is potentially upwards of 50 dams along the Mekong. These dams essentially pit the region's need for clean energy against the need for food and the livelihood and well-being of fishermen and families that live along the Mekong Basin. There are three consequences of the dams. The consequences are slightly different from one another, but all eventually result in one thing, eviction. 
The first has to do with fish. Environmental activists are up in arms about the proposed dams, to say the least. Many species are predicted to go extinct with the construction of the dams. One of these species includes the rare freshwater dolphin that I was fortunate enough to see, perhaps for the last time during my visit to Cambodia. But more significantly, a large dam is planned on the border of Laos and Cambodia. Historically, hundreds of fish species migrate up from Cambodia into the basins of Laos to spawn in the lake. However, with new dams soon under construction, many fish species could soon be thrown under into an endangered state. The second consequence has to do with the regions around the damming sites themselves. The actual sites have evicted hundreds of people from their homes, but the damming flood regions have also been cited as forcing people to leave the nearby area. The third consequence has the potential to be the most impactful. The Tonle Sap Lake, the lake we just talked about that serves as the heart of Cambodia, is connected to the Mekong River. During flood season, the Mekong River level rises high enough to flow back into the Tonle Sap Lake. However, if dams are built, the Mekong River will not rise nearly as high and not supply the water or nutrients to sustain the lake's ecosystem of Cambodians, fish, and other facets of the natural habitat. Thousands would be displaced, potentially millions. I said all of these consequences have to do with eviction, which is true, but there's something even more behind that layer. Eviction in Cambodia stems from a divide in Cambodia between the wealthy and just about everyone else. Remember the story at the beginning of this episode? Two ladies kicked out of their houses, promised apartments, only to see the Hunsen Back Corporation go to bankruptcy. Right, well, the government doesn't really want to help with any of these eviction cases, whether it's in Phnom Penh or outside of the city. And the issue for me at least is that it doesn't even seem to be a question of corruption, but something deeper than that. There seems to be this inherent notion that some people are almost better than others. We see this with the beatings of government officials, the exiling of Sam Rainsy, eviction cases inside and outside of Phnom Penh. Look closely though, and you can even see the racist tendencies of Cambodian. The Phnom Penh Post, English newspaper, ran a great piece a year ago on an ethnic Vietnamese community that had lived on the Mekong River just outside of Phnom Penh for decades. But suddenly, Without any real explanation, the entire community was given three weeks notice to cut their homes loose and leave the area. Cambodia is the most dangerous country you'll ever visit because you'll fall in love with it and then it will break your heart. Remember that line? Cambodia broke my heart because behind all of the layers of growth and optimism, and education, and learning. There remains gross political corruption, constant human rights violations, and a people that remains confused, seems almost trapped in the past. 
Our story from here becomes progressively more optimistic, though. Perhaps a bit hypocritical, yes. We'll take a look at how Cambodia can continue moving on and growing through the lens of education. This was episode two of the Red Sky at Night podcast. Lost at home. Our final piece is coming. See you next time.